Welcome to TGIF, the horror movie podcast that brings you all the casual conversations about your favourite or not-so-favourite horror movies. This week we are back with another bonus episode and my amazing guest this week is Ariel, the host of Ride the Omnibus podcast where she discusses social justice issues through the lens of pop culture. Ariel is also the writer and director of upcoming medical horror short Our First Priority. Uh, Welcome to TGIF. Well, thank you so much, Kat. I'm so glad I could be here. I'm excited. I'm so excited to be here and to be talking about some really fabulous horror with you. Yeah. So today, um, before we get started, actually, can you tell us a little bit about your short? I know we've already talked about it and I'm super pumped. You're obviously incredibly pumped, but tell us a little bit about the, the short. So my short film is a film about medical gaslighting, which is a topic that doesn't get enough uh, play in general. And it's about a young girl going through medical trauma and the avenging angel that looks out for her and kind of keeps the universe in balance. It may not sound like a horror setup, but I promise you it gets very existential and very phantasmagoric in in the end. And to me, it's it's somewhere between a memory play and a a truly horrific representation of hell, uh, based on a lot of my experiences as a member of the chronic illness and dis and the disability community from the time I was very young. And I felt that it was very important to have something that actually reckoned with a lot of these issues around what happens to vulnerable members of the population when they're confronted with medical establishments that don't treat them as full, uh, as fully realized humans, Yeah, I would say. Absolutely. And that thought in itself is terrifying. So no thanks. Yeah. Like I've, I've been there. I've had my moments, you know, I'm, I am abled most of the time. And, uh, but I have been there where they've tried to tell me, you know, oh, that's not real. That's not real. Oh, maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. Oh, you're fine. And it's like, ah, no. And as an abled body person, that, that um, experience is quite, um, I don't, I don't know the word, like concerning. So I can only imagine how horrible it would be for somebody who is desperately trying to get this help that they need and, you know, aren't granted the same access that someone who is able body is. Mm-hmm. And and it is potentially deadly yeah. uh, in, in all cases, but especially when you're dealing with people who are typically uh, miscategorized for whatever set of reasons. And especially when you have doctors who are eager to kind of dismiss or trivialize patients' concerns, uh, all kinds of horrible things can transpire. Um, we have a lot of statistics up on our social media pages right now that are pretty horrifying in and of themselves. If you need, uh, actual academic backup for, anything that I'm saying, but uh, believe me, it's there in the yeah, literature. Absolutely. So um, on the on the topic of social media, where can people find those statistics on your social? What's your social media? There we go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good question. So uh, on Instagram, we are our dot first 
dot priority. And on Twitter, we are our first priority underscore. And you can find me at at ruin my sky on Twitter. Um, and you will find the links to all the things, including my Kickstarter right there. Yeah. And I'm and actually going to put those links in the show notes as well so that you can quickly go and you can pledge to the Kickstarter, which ends end of this month? June 24th. Oh, gosh. I've got to hurry up and get on there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ah, i got to do it. I know I've got to get in there. And it's just, I hate being on my phone and doing things because my card details aren't saved on there. And it's a, yeah. It's a, it's a thing. It's, it's a, a thing. thing. It's a, a process thing that I've got to do. And I will do it. And I highly encourage everybody else to get involved and keep an eye out for for the for the short film it's going to be awesome and you've got an awesome cast and it's mainly fronted by women at this stage which is just freaking fantastic yes and actually it's it's almost entirely women and uh non-binary individuals uh and it's very important to me that it be a story told primarily through that lens because i think that's something that gets lost along the way quite frequently yeah, is remembering those vulnerable populations and remembering that even in the field of film, it's hard to keep stories from that perspective very explicitly. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's something that I've noticed is becoming a norm for a lot of independent filmmakers, which is just incredible for me. I, I, um, I find that more representative of myself personally and you know I'm sure that you're in the same boat and it's just it's just a it's so weird to say that it's heartwarming <laughs> even though it's <laughs> horror <laughs> well no it is heartwarming horror yeah. to a certain extent in that it's you know I, I feel like I'm I'm definitely embracing my own personal values as much as I possibly can with this yeah. project it's going to be amazing. And, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. And especially because we're filming in Pride Month, I feel like it's very important <laughs> to be as inclusive as possible and to acknowledge why we are being as inclusive as possible, yeah. too. Absolutely. So. Also, happy Pride Month, everyone. Happy Pride Month. How exciting. I love so. Pride Month. <laughs> I do, too. I'm, I'm personally bisexual, even though I'm married to... A man, I am bisexual, okay. and it's very important to me, you know, that we celebrate the full range of sexuality in Pride Month, and yeah. I, I just, uh, I, happy Pride Month, everybody. Yeah, I love, Pride Month's just, oh, my heart. <laughs> so today, we're actually going to be talking about social justice in horror films. Um, we're both very passionate about the topic, and... Um, Oh, hold on. Something's just gone funny on my mic. It's my cat. She's gone funny on my mic. Um, <laughs> so what is social justice to you? So social justice to me is not necessarily the same thing it is to everyone else. Usually when people, you know, hear that I'm covering social justice, they automatically think, okay, Black Lives Matter, right? But to me, social justice means so much more than that. It's about equity. It's about, uh, you know, a, 
a certain brand of anti-imperialist capitalism, <laughs> as we were talking about before. It's about coming to terms with sort of all of the fallout from colonialism that never necessarily gets recognized. It's yeah. about representation that's meaningful. It's about uh, the disability community. It's about the queer community. It's about uh, basically every community that has been marginalized and oppressed for uh, any, any number of reasons. But for me, Really, social justice is just as much about income inequality as it is about any of the isms that are out there. And yeah, that's something that I think uh, a lot of people forget when they talk about social justice. They, they forget to talk about those things and that that's really at the core of what the quote unquote SJWs are fighting oh. for. When someone calls me an SJW, I'm like, yeah, and? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, fuck yeah, I want an equitable society. Yes, I want fairness in healthcare and employment and housing and education. Like, yes. Yes, I am a social justice warrior. And I will fight for my, you know, equitable place in society. And for those who need it too. Like, that's what I'm here to do. Like, I'm, I, I want everyone to have their basic human rights and their access and their, you know, um, their participation in society, the way that they can participate. Like, it's not hard, but everyone seems to have an issue with it. And it's just like, why? Yeah. Why yeah. do you have so much, why do you have such a problem with someone having uh, equal equitable, because I, you know, this thing that I, I discuss this with my dad quite a lot, that equity and equality are very different things. And mm -hmm. I see a lot of people talking about equality and it's just like, equality is just everybody being given the same thing, which doesn't necessarily enhance anyone's access to anything. But equity gives everybody the things that they need to be equal participants. And what's so hard, what, what are you losing by giving your neighbour a little bit extra so that they can have the same rights as you. Mm -hmm. Like what's so difficult about understanding that concept? Heartlessness. A lot, apparently. <laughs> yeah. A lot. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Australia is starting to lean very heavily into conservative values and it's quite hard to watch and to process when um, there's a very conservative and white supremacists in our government so I mean same in America yeah. I mean I think it's kind of the same all over the populist conservative movement uh populism conservatism nationalism is all on the rise right now yeah it's um it's just something I haven't lived through yet and so watching, you know, having learnt about it and then watching it happen in my own country, I'm just like, holy shit. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. this is what it is. That's, that's that. Okay. Oh. Yeah. And overcoming the fascist forces at work is, yeah. is suddenly like something that I'm very occupied with on my podcast um, yeah. is you know, talking to filmmakers who are very concertedly talking about the fascist movements of yesteryear as if 
they are here because they are here. Yeah. It's really um I don't know, disconcerting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's just like I'm un- uh, I don't know. It's just it's all very new to me. Like I said, it's so different to study it and then observe like and watch it happening. It's um very two very different things. It's uh very confronting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, when we talk about the films that we're looking at I was just about today, to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, when you think about kind of the forces of fascism and, you know, all of the isms that we've sort of been alluding to, I mean, his house was one of the ones we were going to talk about. Yeah. Right? So let's uh, let's talk about his house. So um, his house is a 2020 horror thriller written by uh, Remy Weeks from a story written by Felicity Evans and Toby uh, Venables. So it's about uh, a refugee couple, Rael and Bol, from South Sudan, and they're struggling to adjust to their new life in an, an English town. That's pretty low socioeconomic as well. So that just says a lot about um, how uh, refugees are displaced in government systems in Western countries, which is quite, yeah, disgusting. Uh, but there's an evil lurking beneath the surface. They've suffered through the loss of their daughter on a journey across the sea and are at the point that they are feeling pretty lucky to be alive. So they kind of just settle into their new home, but they're faced with an apath who has followed them from their home in South Sudan. So it's an exploration of post-traumatic stress disorder, grief and guilt and escapism through assimilation. So it was a really looking at this film through a social justice lens was totally different to watching it the first time that I watched it. And then Mm -hmm. when I went in with like a critical like lens, I was like, holy shit. Wow. Yeah. So I want to know what was so different for you between the two times you watched it. Um, so the first time I did watch it, I knew that they were obviously experiencing PTSD and mental health issues based on their, um, on their experiences moving. So what I did between my first view and my second view was actually look at the different, um, like, uh, Buffett. I don't know what she's doing. Um, what was going on in South Sudan at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, having a look at that and then the refugee treatment in the UK, I also researched into that. And then I watched it again and it's just like, I can see a lot of how the UK treat their refugees the same way they treat refugees from South Sudan here. Mm-hmm. So um, the way that the South Su- the way that South Sudan Sudanese South Sudanese refugees are treated here is a violation of human rights. Absolutely, um, they're yeah. criminally profiled. They're put into like slum areas of like crappy rundown cities. And then uh, basically criminalized on the news. And it's just like, you're doing nothing to help these people deal with the traumatic experiences that they've had. You've just kind of gone, here you go, here's your house. Off you go, bye. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, um, what's Matt's character? Matt Matt Smith? Matt Smith's character Character? of the... um the placement officer or yeah and he kind of is just so complacent with how he is just like well 
this is it. Try and fit in. This is how it goes. And your house is bigger than mine. So, hey. You should be happy with what we've given you. You should be happy. You get what you get and you don't get upset. Yeah, it's really horrible, especially since, you know, these refugees um, don't know the system that they're in. And that's kind of exploited as well. It is. It's very much exploited. And it's also very clear, you know, from the rules even that they're given at the outset, you know, that the British government says you can't work to supplement your income, but you're only given this amount of money, but it's not enough to live on, but you're not allowed to work. So what are you allowed to do? Nothing. Just starve. Yeah. And they're put in a dilapidated house and, you know, it... Obviously, because and it's criminalized that you know it becomes yeah. more dilapidated as they're living in it, as they're hearing things in the night, yeah, and chasing things in the walls, yeah. And I think that Remy did a really fantastic job of shining a light on how some of the most vulnerable members of society um, just can't risk asking for help, right? That's right. not a risk they're willing to take. Because their access, like their access to certain things, is limited in their understanding and their ability to process. And obviously, like they they can speak English, but it's not it's not the same as understanding English. <laughs> no, and it's not the same as understanding the the context and the nuance of where they are exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And all of the details that go into kind of talking about their assimilation process as well with the burning of the belongings and, you know, all of those elements of kind of their culture coming back to haunt them, you know, as they're trying to assimilate before you even know the turn at the end. Yeah. You know, which I don't know if you want to get into spoilers or not. No, no spoilers for this one. No spoilers. Okay. (laughs) I want people to watch this. (laughs) Okay. But I do feel like um, there is a very explicit thing that happens in this film where you have the feeling of dread from the moment that they are literally sacrificing all of their possessions you know, for the sake of fitting in in yeah. the UK. And then all of those things come back to haunt them. Yeah. And to take possession of their home because there is no way of escaping who you are. There is no way of really, truly leaving behind what you are. Yeah. And there's actually a scene where uh, Ryle, uh, Rial is at home and Bol comes home and he's had a few beers and he's talking about how he was down at the pub and he was singing soccer songs. And so he's really leaning into this expectation that he needs to leave his culture behind, whereas Rial doesn't want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that conflict in the two of them really highlights the... Uh, emotional and psychological struggle of refugees who who come here and then are kind of like you're on your own off you go exactly yeah exactly and and i'm also going to be honest with you that in the uk they do more for refugees than they do in the u.s yeah you know i mean the u.s doesn't set people up with housing for example 
that's not a thing that happens here. Uh, in spite of what some conservative uh, pundits would have you think, yeah. uh, there is not a great social network that supports anyone in the U.S. Yeah. And we go on and on about our taxpayer dollars supporting people, but they don't support anyone who's a refugee really at all um, in the ways that would be helpful yeah. And so for me, as an American watching this film, it's sort of like, wow, this is a condemnation of the UK, which is still better than my country. Yeah. And at least at least providing some level of social safety. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot to take in because Australia does very similar things. Um similar to the UK, and I think it just might be a Commonwealth system that they've mm-hmm. kind of just a- adapted here and gone, okay, well, we'll do the same, we'll do something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue and the like, the social issue that I find with this is that everybody has the basic human right to a home and, mm-hmm. and safety and equal rights for that, except in this film, it's a real, it's this at the forefront of, well, if, we consider you a lower sec- like a second class citizen you're not going to give be given the same access that everybody else has. exactly sorry exactly. but we can't we can't we can give that to the people that are like here and from here but we're not going to give that to you too bad exactly and, and you like- have no chance of swapping for another home yeah and you know how dare you ask yeah and like you said you get what you get and you don't get upset yeah yeah, it's really, it's really fucking horrible. It is. And, and I also find that, you know, the, the image of, um, you know, just the tokens that uh, are, are left on the fire. I, 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 there's something about that image of the things that are left on the fire and the way that um, the fire consumes so much that comes back to haunt them in different ways. Yeah. I, I always find that, um, I mean, I've, I always, I've only watched the film twice, but (laughs) I still feel like both times I've watched this, I, I feel very strongly that, that the echoes of both the responsibility to people's pasts and to people's personhoods lies so much in, you know, how governments are treating individuals in society. Yeah. And the thing is like, um, uh, throughout, um, a lot of people leaving South Sudan, um, there was this real anti-migration discourse throughout Europe and people were Mm -hmm. just like, "Mm, no. At the moment, there are currently 4.3 million displaced people from South Sudan, including refugees, IDPs and asylum seekers. So over half of all South Sudanese refugees are children. That is 2.224 million children. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Not, not like, oh my God, I can't believe you're like that. It's just like, why aren't, where are our responsibilities as established safe places 
to these individuals? As far as I'm concerned, migration is a human right. Yes, absolutely. The ability to move from place to place is a human right. Yeah. And, you know, this this whole process of restricting borders and restricting access to countries and so forth. I mean, I understand for safety reasons in the pandemic, things, you know, in terms of lockdowns, etc. Yes, okay, we can take reasonable moves to make sure that we're protecting our populations from specific dangerous viruses. Yeah. But as long as our borders are open to, you know, this country, why should we restrict this other country? Oh, Just yes. because they have people who, you know, are browner or scarier or poorer or whatever er you want to use there. Yeah. So. Australia, we've been receiving South Sudan refugees for, well, where I live is an immigration hub. So they will bring a lot of refugees to my city because we have a lot of uh, what is called EAL slash D, which is English as a second language dialect schools. So they, it's, it, I really like where I live. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. um it's very multicultural where I am. Um and I don't witness the racism. And that's not to say that that doesn't occur. It is not I don't get to decide that, but I am sure there are a lot of students uh and parents that have experienced that here because there are a lot of lazy white Australians who will just say anything to excuse their shitty behavior. So mm. and I don't obviously condone that. That's disgusting. Um, but the, the system in Australia is fit to open opportunities for refugees here. Mm-hmm. It's, um, their, their schools are paid for. They offer, uh, a lot of, um, subsidies in buying uniforms and buying cars and getting set up. I don't, I honestly don't know the depths of how Australians help refugees here in my, in my city, that has been my experience. I don't know what other cities are like because it is normally the state's responsibility to, to have their own policies to help. But then there's also like overarching, like overarching federal policies as well. So Mm -hmm. it's different in each state. I know that in Melbourne, um, the, there was a lot of uh, misinformation being uh, spread around and to the point where shop owners were putting up signs saying that Sudanese refugees were not welcome in their store. This was only in like 2019. Excuse me? Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? No. Yeah. Disgusting. So, yeah. This uh, this film definitely highlights, yeah, the horrors of, of immigration for refugees and the systems that displace them. So they've been not only displaced from their actual country, they come here and are displaced once again. Mm-hmm. And That's and again, horrible. they're clearly displaced from any kind of community they could be a part of. Yeah. Well, we see uh, Rael actually speaking to young black teenagers mm-hmm. and they make fun of her. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, what? You're you're just like me. What what is going on? And obviously, it's internalized racism, and you know a lot of different things at play. And 
it's just the moments where Rael feels like she's connecting to her community are some of the most horrible moments that she goes through. Exactly. And yeah. it's, for me, you know, those moments are pretty heart-wrenching. Yeah. Uh, in particular, you know, and, and the way that they kind of reflect other moments that happen later in the film as well. Um, you know, it's it's very hard to kind of think about how you you become so displaced from one community and, you know, immediately placed into another community where everyone is completely inimical to you and uninterested in you other than uh, threatening you. Yeah. It's really... And I think that definitely is uh, contributed to from the anti-immigration discourse that would have been happening at the time. So if you sounded different or looked different, it was you you weren't acceptable. Right. Right. Yeah. It's really, yeah, this, this film is very eye-opening. And I was just like, wow. Yeah. Fuck, I hate how immigrants are treated like how hard is basic human rights and I mean like that's incredibly naive but there's like it's hard to add nuance to that (laughs) right right yeah yeah but uh, but even like the quote-unquote sympathetic white person is not that sympathetic yeah so but that's that's what I like I like films that are that complex in terms of dealing with how these problems carry through in terms of, you know, like, I, I don't know exactly if, if this is a theme that you see repeatedly, but I, I frequently see in this type of film that you'll have one white person who's not all bad, you know, who's like, you know, 70% on the side of the heroes, right? And then, you know, or one guy who's not all bad, you know, so that you can say not all white people, not all men. And I I yeah. really like films that say yes, all men, yes, all white people, yes, all. Yeah. And this is that film for me. It is. It is for me too. And I, I really appreciate that about this film and that it went there and that it went so hard for this theme. Yeah. Fuck. Everybody, please do go watch His House. It is on Netflix. It scared the living shit out of me. But it is, it's a really heartbreaking movie as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the imagery in it is just absolutely phenomenal. <sighs> yes. Just as the house starts to fall apart, I was just like, oh, I love this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, speaking of complex films, the next one we're yes. going to be talking about is Possessor, which I put as one of my top films of last year. So Mine too. It was yeah. actually one of my top two films of last year. Yeah, His House and Possessor were actually my top five, so... <laughs> and Psycho Goreman, but that's... That's my com- comedic relief film for the year. Yeah, yeah. Because we all need a hunky boy in there somewhere. Yes! I actually have a t-shirt with Psycho Gorman and it says hunky boys on it. Awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. my favourite at the moment. 
Um, so Possessor is a 2020 British Canadian science fiction psychological horror written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg, who you would all know the name. Uh, the fil- This is actually his second film, isn't it? Antiviral was yeah, the first. Yeah, Antiviral was the first, yeah. Yeah. For a second film, like, holy moly. Yeah. I'm so- going to say it. Holy shit. <laughs> like, say, it I is... say holy moly because it's so... No. <laughs> like, yes. like, quite seriously, Fuck. how does he dive into so many complex issues so quickly on a sophomore feature yeah. with, you know... A stunning performance from Andrea Riseborough oh. and an equally stunning performance from Christopher Abbott. Yeah. I just was absolutely blown away by uh, both of their performances, but equally, you know, his whole vision for how to think about identity in the future. Yeah. And how to how to think about where technology is going to bring us? Yeah, absolutely. And how this um, this film completely uh, leans on this idea of um, privacy and capitalist obsession with our lives, and how how much are we going to be giving away? Mm-hmm. Like all of ourselves. And- exactly. How much of ourselves are we going to be giving away? How much? of our personal memories are we willing to chip away at for the sake of whatever we deem to be the cause or, you know, alternatively, how much are we willing to sacrifice of our own privacy so that people can evaluate the curtains in our bedroom? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that uh, the uh, the monitoring that they do throughout this film is definitely, um, I think it's just a real big I can't think of the word critique of how much of our lives we put on social media already, and mm-hmm. you know we're already putting photos of hey these are my new curtains and people are judging them and deciding if they're acceptable or not. So what's the difference yeah. between a friend doing it? and having corporate involvement doing it right right yeah and it's it's also a question of you know the the fact that within the film you have a framework where you have andrea riseborough as an assassin who's basically transforming herself into other people and losing herself in other people's bodies including this one guy who has been working for his seriously fucked up uh, (laughs) father-in-law who's the head of this Google-like technology company, you know, and he's just watching people have sex casually while, you know, just saying what the windows look like and Um, what the curtains are. There's like an, extra layer to that voyeurism as well where he's being monitored by somebody else exactly he's being monitored while he's monitoring it's yeah and it's just it's a real big uh indication of what is already happening with our social media interactions and our everyday reactions with people and what's socially acceptable and that there's this level of um how do I uh, p- 
perform this role in society. And with Voss losing herself, um, uh, she, you know, is um, always going back and having to identify these objects to be like, okay, well, this is, I'm me, this is me. And, um, but then when she's in these people and taking over their bodies, it's like a level of performativism, performativism, Mm -hmm. where, um, it's really reflective of us and how we lose ourselves and forget about um, our identity and our gender and who we are without our jobs and without, um, like, oh, like we're kind of desensitized to certain things and forget they exist and we yeah. forget ourselves in a way. Yeah. And, and it's also fascinating to me looking at this film from the lens of, you know, sort of the way that she interacts with the bodies that she's in. Yeah. Um, because to me, it, it resonated for me along the lines of body dysmorphia and body dysphoria issues. Yeah. And, and really looking at uh, the way that she and inside of Chris Abbott's body is, you know, examining his body as she's in control of it and the way that she feels completely disconnected from everything. You know, I'm for a lot of people that could range from, you know, a mental health kind of uh, resonance in terms of dissociative identity disorder to as I said, dysmorphia or dysphoria, but it, it also has a lot of resonance, I think, um, for, for people who feel disconnected because of the things that they do. Uh, Brandon Cronenberg has actually said that, you know, one of the things he was going after was this feeling of disconnection and PTSD, uh, that drone pilots face, uh, when they came home after having to do horrible things and, you know, how that would feel to come home and to have to, you know, actually interact like a human being knowing you had done these horrible things in the day and how to, you know, restore some sense of yourself. Yeah. It's a violation of your agency, really. Yeah. It's just like, oh, okay. I've been exploited to do these really horrible things. Like, where's my sense of self? Where's my autonomy? Where do I, where does that, where is that line? Because it's obviously been incredibly blurred. Right. And it, and it's this sense of you are both the exploiter and the exploited simultaneously. Yeah. And we see that because you're owning someone else's body. Yeah. I'm sorry. You see that in Christopher Abbott's character. Yeah. Yeah. And and Ooh. when you see, you know, the way that he reacts to having her inside of him, you know, th- that's where I think these performances are so outstanding, really, um, is being able to kind of feel along with them how the exploitation is happening on so many different levels. Yeah. And, you know, and again, it goes back to imperialist capitalism, you know, and feeling like this sense of being a puppet that's controlled by the state on some level or controlled by tech companies. You don't really have a choice. 
You don't. And then, of course, there's the question of, you know, is is the form that she's filling out every time where Jennifer Jason Lee's character is saying, oh, good, good. Yes, you're yourself. How honest is she actually being Yeah. in any of those moments? Yeah, because you do uh, throughout the film, you do see her as a. Uh, because it's not really her, I'm not thinking about body, but her soul is changing, like her yeah. characteristics, her personality, and she becomes a different entity by the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. It's, uh, it, I have some questions about this. So the opening scene in yes. this film where Voss yes. has actually taken the body of a black woman. Yes. And um, there's been a lot of critique about this, obviously. There has, and, um, yes. Brandon Cronenberg obviously did it on purpose. Like, it's yeah. it's intentional, it's purposeful, and for me it is about um, obviously control and um, that lack of autonomy and the mm-hmm. differences in how... Uh, black bodies don't have that autonomy and mm-hmm. Voss obviously took that away from this black woman. And she, and she does with Christopher Abbott as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then she goes on to stab her target and she is consequently shot. And mm-hmm. later on she is questioned um, and her handler asks, why did she stab him? And she said, well, maybe it seemed more in character. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, that's so indicative of the way that white women are reductive. Well, not white women, but white people are reductive about black bodies. Exactly. Exactly. And are like, oh. Um, and uh, I don't know if you know Prince Jackson. He actually wrote something about, uh, just on Twitter, he tweeted about how horror movies seem to have this sacrificial black person in their films. Mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm their bodies don't seem to matter and they just help the hero get to where they need to be. And mm-hmm. now I don't know if Voss is a hero in this film in any no, show before. No, she's not. <laughs> but um, yes, that moment for me was definitely the sacrificial black body and um, uh, autonomous uh, bodies being violated and yeah. for the purpose of entertainment. Yeah. And that line from Tasia Voss also was the line that shows how cold and how callous and calculating she is right from the very beginning. Yeah. When she says it was more in character for her, that's not only to say that she's reducing whatever this woman's status was to something that she can easily compartmentalize and understand but it's also saying that you know she's somehow you know able to just you know fritter away like a human life in two different ways I mean she's doubly damning people yeah with this one act well, the thing is, the people don't necessarily die when right. she leaves right. their body. Right. And so this woman didn't have to die. Right. It's just very, um, very confronting and very like, oh, uh, that didn't, that was unnecessary. Right. Ah, yeah. uh, it's just, it's a very, uh, 
creepy um, commentary on a lot of very complex issues. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and like, right from the very beginning of, like, that close-up shot of her cornrow and sticking the uh, piece inside Ooh, in the her head. scalp. Ugh. You know, and, and with that distinct piece of body horror, I think you're automatically getting the sense of, okay, this is this is a woman's Black identity being erased by this piece of machinery. Yeah. In that yeah. one shot, even though you don't know who's in there, you still get the sense of some kind of oppression immediately happening from machinery. Yeah. Fuck, that's heavy. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, this film is, it's beautiful, it is confronting, it is conflicting, and yeah, it, it says a lot, it says a lot. And I think Brandon Cronenberg did that with Antiviral as well. I haven't oh, watched for sure. that yet, so it's on my list. <laughs> it's actually, oh, okay. I think it's on Shudder. So I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, okay. you, you have a treat there. You have oh, a I'm treat excited. There. Actually, I think I saw it on Blu-ray and I was just like, what? How did, th- how? <laughs> I'm excited, yeah. but how? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a great film. And I feel like in both films, he shows a particular obsession with the idea of, you know, social media possessing us in certain ways and yeah. the idea that, you know, we are essentially made up of simultaneously too much and too little. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> but I I, I really, like well, and I really identify with that scene where Tasia Vos is, is like rehearsing how she's going to say, hello, how are you? Yeah. A, My uh, day was good. What's for dinner? Yeah. As a neurodivergent person, I definitely know that. Yeah. I do yeah. that a lot. Where I'm I do that a lot too. And yeah. you know, you just it, it it's funny because there are so many elements of this that I think resonate in certain ways for those of us who are neurodivergent in some way or who feel like, you know, we have imposter syndrome or who feel like you know, we are somehow on the margins in some strange little way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This film's fantastic. And the soundtrack. I love it. I'm going to try and buy it on vinyl if I can. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The the vinyl soundtrack cover, by the way, is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. That's mainly why I want it. Because I was like, oh, I love it. I need the, the cover artwork. Like as yeah. a poster in my bedroom, people people would be like, "This is a little weird," and I'd be like, "No, it's be- it's beautiful, it's beautiful, it is beautiful. Leave it, it alone. It's beautiful, for sure." Um, so the last film is a little bit different. It is a stop motion animated horror film by the name of La Casa Lobo, which uh, translates to English in as Wolf House. It is a Chilean film by Christabel Leon and Jacques. Cosina and co-written by Alexandra Moffat. Uh, the Wolf House is based on a folklore that was found in Colonia uh, 
Dignidad, um, which was basically a commune of mm-hmm. uh, Germans who had migrated to Chile, uh, and they were a bunch of religious fanatics. Um, but not just religious fanatics, uh, shall we say. These were these were fascists who were doing experimentation and yeah. They I, were, do, I don't uh, know if they were former Nazis. So well, not only were they former Nazis, but they were explicitly, you know, uh, forming uh, circles of pedophilia and. Yeah. Uh, enabling torture to happen throughout the yeah. whole system of uh, the, the colonia as it was called. Yeah. That's, that's a great precedent naming it colonia after a Roman word, you know, obviously great things happening there. Yeah. Um, so but the film's yeah. actually a piece of propaganda uh, that would be shown and told to those who fled the colony um, and basically says, hey, you're only safe in the arms of the colony. So uh, they were basically manipulated and gaslit lit into staying. So Maria, a young woman, finds refuge in a house in the south of Chile after escaping from a sect, well, escaping from Colonia Dignidad. Uh, she's welcomed into the home by two pigs, the only inhabitants of the house. Like in a dream, the universe of the house reacts to Maria's feelings and mutates and evolves and changes, and the animals slowly transform into humans, and the house descends into a nightmarish world. Um, this film was stunning. Absolutely stunning. And wow. I, the visuals in this, I, I cannot imagine how long they took to create. Oh, yeah. I just can't imagine. It's just, it blew my mind. And I was like, wow. I love this. It was a, so (laughs) this film is very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I had to do a little bit of research after it so that I understood the context of of the film. So um, they were a rural uh, community founded in the 1950s by uh, Paul Schaefer, who was a preacher and a child welfare worker who basically brought over a bunch of a community of immigrants from Germany. Um, and even Joseph Mengele was known as one of the colony members. Um, basically, Schaefer would instruct people to torture and murder dissidents, uh, dis- dissidents during uh pinochet i don't know who that is pinochet augusto pinochet was a chilean dictator oh okay who was also brutal and horrifying in his tactics as well yeah so there was a lot of child sexual abuse and torture and experiments because we all know what joseph mengele was up to while he was at the concentration camps um eventually in 1996 schaefer was only 1996. This is so crazy. Um, he was charged with child sex abuse, and after fleeing the country, he was arrested in 2005, and he died in prison. So other former leaders of the community have also received prison sentences. So this story is, um, yeah, it's it tells a wow story. Um, so Maria is uh, the way that the film replicates the world she escaped from 
um, is really interesting. And especially the transformation of the pigs <laughs> throughout yes. the film. Yes. Yeah. So uh, in uh, uh, Chile at the time, uh, one of the slurs that was used against peasants was pigs. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, very indicative of how um, the Colonia Dignidad treated the people who lived where they basically set up a sect. <laughs> And and remember also that the Germans also called the Jewish Schwein as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's sort of a double meaning in that imagery of the pigs too. So yeah, the the imagery throughout this following Maria's escape shows. Um, yeah, it's um, it shows the implication of indoctrination because she's obviously going through these periods where she's unsure of where she is and she's having like uh, nightmares. And it also is very reflective of her trauma. Mm-hmm. And um, especially when the children start, uh, the pigs start to morph into children yes. and the way yes. that she treats them. Right. It's very interesting. I was like, Oh, okay. In- I, I think I understand. <laughs> yeah and when when they morph into children it it's also fascinating in terms of um you know because because the whole thing is through the lens of stop motion animation you know the way that they are treated and the way that the both the way that she is treating them and the way that she was treated in the beginning yeah. begin to reflect a lot of, you know, that. so she she begins to have a lot of the same kinds of gaslighting behavior as well toward the children, Yeah, you know, as the pigs become children and, you know, the same sort of uh, problematic uh, behaviors that you can assume were a part of the Colonia Dignidad are also a part of her behavior too. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you can't, you can, but I'm assuming you can't just escape that kind of socialization. It's um, not in a vacuum anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So we see this control of Maria over the two children as they morph from brunette, black haired children into blondes. And that was when I was just like, oh, I get it. I Mm -hmm. get it now because I didn't go in viewing it as a piece of propaganda until I read about it. And I was like, Oh, Oh, wow. Okay. I, yes. Okay. I see that now because um, we hear Maria talking about how, um, you know, the children are going to change into something better. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that where I was like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a really interesting tale and it, you know, it shows the horror of authoritarianism and totalitarianism and anti-socialization and um, you know, uh things well, organizations and groups and people that still are reminiscent of of Nazi regimes and it's like it's so strange to know, well not strange, but it's like these people did escape and continue their lives and continued their control and racism and 
sexual violence and torture. Like no one was, no one could escape that. Right. And it continued for how long? Till 1996. And, yeah, exactly. And, you know, no one was actually doing anything to control this. And yeah. you have to imagine that some authorities somewhere were aware of what yeah. was happening. That can't just happen and people be like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. I'm okay with this. Yeah. Right. It's really, um, yeah. Watching that, I did feel a little bit motion sickness, but that's just my eyes. So did I. So I'm did like, I. Oh. But um, yeah. It, it's a but really I would say it's story. worth the motion sickness to, yes. to experience the full range of emotion that this gives you in terms of actually processing a lot of the horror in a way that is more visceral because it, it's made sculptural. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's imagery that's sculptural rather than formed with dialogue and with, you know, flat 2D imagery. Yeah. Yeah. And just the way Maria transforms throughout it, as she thinks, you know, I'm running away because I'm being punished and I've got to be here on my own for 100 days and 100 nights. And how she transforms into essentially the same people she was trying to escape. Exactly. And this, it's, a, it's a cycle of trauma and mm -hmm. um, how we can't escape our demons all the time. Right. Without support. Right. And obviously, you know, a lot of those people like Maria's instance wouldn't have had that at all in, in you know, Chilean society. Exactly. Because the same thing was going on publicly in Chilean society in in different extremes, but yeah. in different ways. But nonetheless, it would hardly be, you know, outright repudiated. No, <laughs> there were other things that people were fighting against and concerned with. And this so. kind of would have just gone, oh, sorry, sorry, too bad. We're busy. Yeah. It's just like so crazy to be like oh joseph Mengele was there he is like the worst person to have ever walked this earth well one of oh, those poor for people. sure uh excuse me muffin <laughs> and it's funny because earlier today i was recording a podcast about medical horror and oh. uh you know thinking about joseph Mengele and uh you know, the guinea pig movies and the the whole range of of torture that's represented in the wolf house. Yeah. I feel like the absolute most damaging expression of that torture that I've found in recent times is actually in Wolf House. Um, just because it, it's an expression that I can take physically watching, but is deeply disturbing and resonant and stays with me for days. Uh, yeah. Afterwards, so. I definitely thought about it for a long time. I think maybe because I related to the isolation of the film and how everything mm. is just occurring in this one space and everything's just constantly changing around Maria. And yes, it is a piece of propaganda that suggests, hey, you can't 
it's not the world is not safe without us the world is not safe out there um and also you know makes a lot of suggestions about what the ideal person is right right it's just like well there is no ideal person exactly and so like that's the message that sat with me afterwards is the that people who are in positions of power have this ability to tell you you're not the ideal person Mm -hmm. you're not it sorry you're not it you're not it you are too this too that too noisy too... too talkative too loud too obnoxious too stupid mm-hmm. yeah it's um too brown too disabled too you know too mentally ill too too dirty too poor too yeah. whatever and i think that a lot of fascism is structured around that so it is yeah. it's very much structured around othering people as much as possible yeah which is one thing we didn't really discuss throughout this bit yet so um Obviously, Nazism, Nazism, Nazi regime uh, was a fascist movement, um, which obviously was devastating and condemnable, and I hope it never fucking repeats ever again. Um, And you see that throughout this, that um, the control and the otherism and Maria questioning if she is ideal and modeling the pigs after who she thinks she should be yeah and repeatedly you know taping over and you know rehabilitating the image of everything around her yeah to imitate whatever she believes it should be yeah and that goes a lot to like um indoctrination and like fascist control you know Mm -hmm. telling you what you need to believe and how you need to do something and Mm -hmm. yeah and if people don't see that happening now (laughs) i don't know what to tell you if you don't see that happening now (laughs) yeah especially in conservative uh conservative uh movements and you know uh extreme uh conservatism and um yeah it's definitely happening here uh, a lot of Australians wouldn't know to call it fascist, uh, you know, a fascist ideology. But there you go. Uh, just have a look at the One Nation Party. Australians, they are fascists. <laughs> so, yeah, have a very good look at who we have in our system at the moment. And it'll be very eye-opening. Very, You'll have a realisation, I think. <laughs> and I'm sure it's the same in the US system. Yeah, in the US system right now, I mean there's there's been so much outright fascism and white supremacy uh coming out with uh you know the the rise the rise to power of trump to begin with brought in a lot of cries of white power yeah that were just absolutely disgusting to behold and uh it's been Horrifying to see so many people defending that and, you know, decrying diversity and feeling like emboldened to say diversity is a bad thing. Yeah. And emboldened to say, you know, we want to keep things as they are. Don't upset the status quo. Yeah. Especially if white men are reaping the benefits of it. Right. 
Right. Because white men, they have it too rough. Oh, oh. no. Oh, oh no. Yeah. Fuck. I'm so I feel so sorry for you and all of your travesties. But um but my favorite thing recently was uh, Joe Rogan's comment about how if we give in to the extreme woke left, which I don't know what that means, um white men will never be allowed to speak. And I was literally like, fuck. I wish I could shut you up. <laughs> Go away. Give me a moment the in time where white men woke left. Yes. I don't know what that means. White men will never be allowed to speak. Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll be very honest with you. Like I I don't I don't understand what it is that makes everyone feel so threatened by just sharing the stage. Yeah. What is so wrong with that? <sighs> they I you know what? It is such a mind-boggling thing to think about yeah especially uh yeah joe rogan's a fucking idiot but i was just like i wish white men would shut the fuck up for like at least five seconds just five seconds it would be nice but (sighs) no we need a day and it's just white men don't speak day that'd piss joe rogan off (laughs) that that would piss joe rogan off and you know (laughs) And I mean, yeah, I, I'm speaking, movement. I can speak from from a place of being a female filmmaker and hearing from a lot of white male filmmakers, oh, but I'm not allowed to make a movie anymore. Why? And oh, <laughs> no one's going to give me a meeting. I'm like, do you realize what percentage films are still made by white men? Like, I am not feeling sorry for you. <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, it's not ninety nine exactly. Uh, I'm speaking in high in high hyperbole. In, in hyperbole, <laughs> sure, sure. But it's still it's still a really really high number. Yeah, and it's sort of like okay, if you can't deal with the fact that you got a couple of rejection letters, where that's all I've ever gotten, like yeah. you can deal, you yeah. can deal. And it's just it's like, hey, did you ever think that maybe your movie fucking sucks? That's why you're not given a fucking meeting. Like, critically think about yourself and have a little bit of a reflection. Like, every other time that you took up someone's meeting with your crappy movie, you you took away someone else's opportunity that had a fantastic film. That was just brushed to the side for you to have your meeting. Yeah. Like... But that's not the prevailing attitude. For the most part, it's no. mostly like, well, why can't I tell this indigenous story? Like, Yikes. or me, why can't I tell this Latinx story? Why can't I do blah, blah, blah? It's like, because uh, film companies actually want to hear the voices of those minorities and not yours. Yeah. Maybe that's what but the change is now. That's well, I hope other. that. That's... <laughs> not my story to tell (laughs) no and you know and (sighs) telling people that they need to get a writer who actually knows those things is like not what they want to hear and it's the bare minimum they can do (laughs) it's the bare minimum yeah I just have a real big thing with mediocre men at the moment where I'm just like you are so average how did you get there (laughs) 
<laughs> like you are you are a mediocre person. You are of mediocre intelligence. <laughs> like how? Yeah. <laughs> well, and not only that, but then you have like women who are asked to pass a, a huge bar of like, you know, what is your intent? What is your background? Ugh. Like, are you the right person to tell this story where we don't ask those questions of white men? Yeah. But we do ask it of women, particularly women of color. Yeah. And it's, you know, really appalling to me. Yeah. You'd know that experience. You've probably yeah. had that experience. Yeah, well, I mean, I I know the experience of a woman with disabilities, not a woman of color. Yeah, of but, course. Yeah. yeah. But having to answer questions and, and go through situations where you feel like it's only applicable to women. And then there'd right. be a whole other experience for women of color, obviously. That'd be a whole other level to add to it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, and I see the discourse around uh, Chloe Zhao and her win at the Oscars and how, yeah. you know, people are like, well, but she's no Ava DuVernay and Ava DuVernay should have been the one to win it, you know, and it's like, well, I'm sorry, but she didn't. And <laughs> like, we're celebrating this woman of color now and let's yeah. stop with the what about isms. Oh, and- Yeah. It's so frustrating, isn't it? There's times where I'm just like, I've got to log off social media because I'm sick of hearing about what about this and what about that and this is how women should be and this is how this should be. And it's just like, you're a cis heterosexual male who is white. You, I don't, we don't want to hear from you. We really don't. That's not your moment to shine. (laughs) Right. Right. Go away right. with your anime character Twitter profile and off you go. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my goodness. I've blocked so many people on Twitter because I'm just like, I don't even want you <laughs> maybe coming up in my feed again. I don't want to hear it from you. The amount of times yeah. I've had to like brace myself and not have a Twitter argument with an egg profile is ridiculous because I'm just like, I can't believe you had the audacity to say that, but I can because you're on a profile. Nobody knows who you are. (laughs) So that's why you have the audacity (laughs) because no one can find you. (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, it's great. It's look, I'm glad I'm living in the time that I am now where so many people are becoming more and more empowered and motivated to, to really, change things and I hope that you know when my niece's generation comes through that they're reaping the benefits of it yeah I don't want them to have to do too much fighting (laughs) exactly and and my biggest hope is the next generation yeah and I I see them fixing a lot of our mistakes yeah and and I mean we're really being making mistakes yeah and and I and I see them you know, really coming to terms with things in a way that, you know, because they have so much access to information in a way yeah. that we didn't from Absolutely. an early age, their yeah. their understanding is so much further beyond where we are. So yeah, in a in Australia, we just had a group of teenagers take our government to court um, to, I think, to sue them for allowing 
the injustice of climate change to impact their future and they won in wow COVID. yeah <laughs> that's incredible yeah i will actually share the link on my twitter um but please do yeah it's really freaking cool like i was just like hell yeah like so yeah they took our government to court and was just like hey your inaction on climate change is impacting my future do something about it and sued them and won so it's really cool that's fantastic so, yeah i'm pretty excited and i was like yes i hope that there's more powerful people like that in the next gen- in in their generation that are going to continue to do that so yeah and I hope that I get to teach them and get to know them and inspire some of that. And I think you will. Thank you. And I think you will on ah. so many levels. <laughs> I just want to be that um, crazy left-wing history teacher where parents are like, do I need to call about her? <laughs> and I think you will be, and I think it'll be amazing. Yeah, so. I had, thank you. I had plenty of those that really paved the way for me as, as a student. So it was, it's been very, um, inspiring i had a lot of inspiring teachers it was cool that's wonderful yeah well um thank you so much for joining me for this episode i've absolutely loved talking about all these films and uh thank you for getting me to watch uh wolf house i'm gonna have to watch that again with a totally different uh frame of mind i think (laughs) (laughs) and just be like wow okay i get it because um during school, we didn't learn a lot about fascism, which is really interesting. So mm. it's a very new concept to me, and um, I'm enjoying learning. So this has definitely contributed to that. That's wonderful. No, because I, I I really love that film so much, and uh, I'm so glad you you enjoyed it. Yes, so. it is on Shudder, everyone. I um I actually had to put my VPN on for it so I could watch it in American yeah. on American yeah. Shutter because it's not on Australian Shutter. Um, and uh, it's just probably classification issues here. Like I'm uh, sure. I'm yeah, sure. It takes a long time to get everything classified. It probably got refused classification because people they would have been like, no, we cannot educate the Australians. I don't know what this is. <laughs> yeah. You know. I don't I don't know. This has got oh it's got Nazis. No, we're not having this here. So that's <laughs> probably the mindset that was here. But um, yes, could you please share your social media handles again to reiterate the importance of your wonderful short movie, Alpha's Priority Kickstarter? Absolutely. So uh, my handles are on Instagram at our first, I'm sorry, at our dot first dot priority and on Twitter, our first priority underscore and I am also at Ruin My Sky on Twitter. If you would like to follow me and check out what's up with my writings on Ghouls Magazine, Comics Bookcase, and my Kickstarter, they are all linked to you there. And uh, I want to thank you so much for having me on, Kat. This was no. so much fun. No, thank you. 